This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Well, good morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Karen Chatton from Gardnerville, Nevada, and you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for May 13th, episode 912. Good morning, Horse World. When your start time's on Saturday and your finish time's on Sunday, and it doesn't get much better than best conditioned, and completing the challenge is the challenge. You're an endurance rider. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. But don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me up Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here this morning on Horses in the Morning. We appreciate you being here. We want to welcome our endurance expert and rider guru, Karen, back to the show today. (laughs) Hi, Karen. Hi, good morning. It's so good to chat with you again. I always look forward to our once-a-month chats here about uh, riding long distances. I know. So do I. Now, you... uh, we're going to chat a little bit here about uh, whatever adventures. I always like hearing about your adventures because, you know, there's one thing you can count on with my co-hosts. I, I seem <laughs> to have picked a good batch of co-hosts because they always have stories of wacky things that happen to them. And, and I, <laughs> you know, that's what really makes good radio people is they have to have unusual lives where strange things happen to them that don't happen to anybody yes, else. Yes, things that you can't make up. Because right. they're real. <laughs> they're real, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's an endurance writer for you. You know, you can't make this stuff up. And in the last month, I've had, you know, a, quite an adventure. Um, actually, it's been pretty much exactly a month ago. My horse colicked, and uh, I took him to the vet clinic, and they treated him and sent us home, and everything they thought was okay except it wasn't, and I ended up taking him to another vet clinic later that same day, and as it turned out, he had twisted his gut, a 180-degree twist, and needed to have surgery. So my horse, Bo, had colic surgery on April 9th, and uh, he's recovering. I actually, um, he's been recovering really well. Last night, I actually got on him and rode him for the first time. Well, you know, and, and Bo, for the regular listeners to the show, will know that Bo is, uh, is your high mileage horse. He's the one that you've had as well, he, your... Well, he's one of them. He's not the yep. highest mile. Uh, Chief, Chief has over 14,000. Bo is just one ride shy of having 8,000, which, you know, for most riders, that's a pretty high mileage horse. You know, and he's a really good horse. He's done 400 miles this season, including a one-day hundred. And, you know, it, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. I don't recommend 
colic surgery for, for the owners to go through at all. It's, um, you, you know, it's an up and down kind of thing. It's very emotional. You, you know, you're dealing with, you know, the life of your horse is at stake. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things you really don't ever want to go through. I don't recommend it. But on the other hand, now that I have been through it, um, it it was. I'm glad I did it at the time. You know, it, it it's a stressful situation to be in, and as it turned out, had I not made that choice to go through with the surgery, Bo would not have survived. So we right. made the right choice, and we made it quickly enough. We got him the help he needed in time, and I had an excellent surgeon at, at Comstock um, Equine Hospital, and they did a fantastic job. They they provided great care for him, and they saved his life. And um, he's, you know, the fact that he was already in such good shape, you know, contributed to his ability to bounce back as well as he has. Well, I want to find out right after we hear from Jennifer what's on today's show if this uh, if the surgery room had a had an owner window, and in, if in fact you watched, we'll find that out in a minute. First, uh, Jennifer, what is on today's show? On today's endurance episode, Karen first sets us straight with trail etiquette part two. And then she sheds some light on the pro- a great product for, to have for night riding. And then next up, the USA Endurance Team Selector for the World Equestrian Games in Normandy, Dr. Ken Marcella stops by. And in the third half of the show, Julie White brings us the Australian perspective on endurance. So stay tuned for the fray, folks. Yeah, we have a terrific show lined up today. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, so did they have a window in the operating room so you could watch, and did you watch? They did. I had to stand on my tippy toes to look through it, and I, you know, I could only barely do little. I felt like a peeping Tom <laughs> <laughs> because I, I just I couldn't, you know, my own gut couldn't stand it to watch the whole thing, but I could do it in small little, you know, bits of, peeping through at a time and you know and I look through and and they're pulling you know Bo only had a like it was like a nine inch incision and out of that they pulled his entire gut through it you know went through it and put it back in (laughs) I know isn't that amazing (laughs) it is it's incredible and you know, and they said he was a really good By the patient. way, apologies to everybody eating breakfast right now. Go ahead. Kate. I know. <laughs> uh, yes, and this, yes, yes. It, it's, uh, yeah, you got to um, have a, uh, yeah, a, a settled stomach to deal with that. But he came out of the anesthesia really well. You know, he didn't fight it. You know, he was calm and level-headed, which I think contributed to his recovery ever since. And uh, he stood up, and it, it wasn't much longer until I was able to lead him back to his to the barn where he had his recovery in the stall there. And it, it, to me, it was amazing to see this horse go through this, you know, pretty traumatic episode of, you know, having this what I considered major surgery. And I and I at the time, you know, it was a tough thing to go through because. You know, I'd always been under the impression that when a horse went through colic surgery, they would never be the same again, and or that 
you know, there were so many chances of complications or problems occurring. But this hospital, you know, they assured me and the surgeon assured me that Bo had like a 90% chance of not just recovering from the surgery, but of going back to his, you know, previous career as an endurance horse. That the odds were really in his favor. And, at, and in fact, what we agreed to do to start with was to go in and do an exploratory. They were going to open him up and go in and see what was going on. And if it didn't look good, we were going to stop right there. We weren't, they weren't going to continue. And so, you know, I'm basically holding my breath, waiting for them to come out and tell me what they found. And when they came out, it was good news. They found he only had a 180-degree twist, and it wasn't tight. There was no damage to his gut, so nothing had to be cut out. Um, everything, once they put it back, everything moved through the gut, so they never had to cut into it or anything like that. So that you know, made for a fairly uncomplicated surgery and increased his you know, chances of uh, having a good recovery. By the way, any time a surgery costs you 10000 or more, I consider it major, too. So. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's traumatic for everybody. <laughs> Including the checkbook. Well, I'm so glad that uh, he seems to be recovering well. Do you have any idea what happened? Did he roll after dinner, or do we have any thoughts on what happened? Um, they don't know. You know, he had done an endurance ride, you know, the weekend before, a few like four days before. The weather had also changed. Uh, the only other significant finding was that morning when he stopped eating as much as he normally did. He was covered in hives. So we think he may have eaten something that might have thrown him off of his food. And the surgeon mm. said that all it took was a little something to, you know, cause a disruption in his gut from working like it should have. And the really interesting part of this is, um, which is a really important lesson for endurance riders, is to, you know, always know your horse and know what's normal for your horse. Because if I had been gone, let's just say, and somebody else had been looking in on him, you know, he still ate. He just wasn't eating as much as normal. And... The fact, and he never during the entire thing ever presented as anything other than just a mild colic. The first vet clinic sends him home because his pulse was low, he wasn't in pain, um, he just wasn't showing any signs of being really uncomfortable. It, it was just one of those weird kind of things with, with me being, you know, observant enough to know that this wasn't my normal bow. He's always you know he always eats all of his food and just something was off and I knew it and and I knew it enough to not just bring him to the first vet clinic but then you know to make sure I got him to the second one where where they were actually able to help him so it, it, it's all a matter about knowing your horse it's very important to, to know when something's not right but no they don't know what caused it they it's an unknown kind of thing and and it can happen to any horse at any time which is kind of a frightening thing i'm going to be even more paranoid than i ever was before <laughs> <laughs> i think that happens after we all go through that first traumatic time uh, oh my I gosh i definitely think that happens <laughs> 
And what I, she I said think, is so I true. think every time your pony lays down, Glenn, you think he's colicking, don't you? I do every time too. he lays I, down. Because, because he never stops eating. He never stops eating. So when he's actually laying down, <laughs> I like have to go out and check on him because he never, ever stops eating. And when he stops eating, I'm, I'm always convinced there has to be a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, I know, and exactly you know, and, and and you count the number of poops, and you know, if yeah, there's right. not I do that. I'm that, a I'm an obsessive you know, poop we, counter. <laughs> yes, I'm a poop counter now. Yes, uh, and and you know, and that's the other thing is that while that morning when Bo wasn't eating as much as he normally did, I you know went out because I pick up the the manure every single morning, and he filled up his wheelbarrow full. You know, so everything up until that point was going, you know, going along just fine. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. (laughs) You know, Karen, there are 10,000 radio shows probably on the air around the world right now. And (laughs) and none of them had the statement, I am an obsessive poop counter, except ours. That's the only place (laughs) you will hear that this morning. That's right. It's not just quantity, it's consistency and quality. And quality, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, well, once, once he got home and he went off all the meds, you know, he got a little runny again for just a few hours. And, of course, that had me all freaked out. And then, it, you know, you wouldn't think you'd, you're, like, practically praying for a normal poop. <laughs> And when he comes, you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you weren't out in the middle of nowhere on one of your rides in the middle of the desert oh. four hours from anything when all of this happened. Exactly. I was, yeah. I was really lucky that it happened here, and I was observant, and, you know, we were able to get him the help he needed. In the first clinic, you know, even though we thought he was fine because he never presented as being painful or with a high heart rate, he wasn't sweating, he wasn't in pain, nothing like that. But, you know, the fact that they gave him, you know, they, um, you know, gave him some fluids and that sort of thing, that probably, you know, helped, helped um, at least get him to the point where he was, you know, still in good shape by the point at which they took him into surgery. So it was a Quite an experience, not just for the horse, but for the horse's owner. Well, we're glad you're back on him again, and we're going to have a chat with Dr. Ken Marcella a little later in the show, uh, not only about the WEG, but also about recovering from colic uh-huh. surgery. It seemed timely, so that's, uh, that should be a good chat. But, you know, last month when you were on, we started a uh, series on trail etiquette during an endurance ride. And we did part one of that last month. So if you missed that, go to horsesinthemorning.com and just search for Karen Chatton, and you'll find all the episodes that she has done or endurance, search for endurance. And you can go back and listen to part one of that. But today we're going to do part two, aren't we? We are. And, and most of this is all kind of common sense type of stuff. So uh, I got through part of my list last month, and this month we're just going to pick up from where we left off. All right, let's do it. Okay, so where we are, we're going down the trail. So what you want to do when you're going down the trail is try to always keep a horse length distance away from the horse ahead of you and give even a little bit more space if it's a horse that you don't know that's ahead of you. If I'm riding with somebody else, 
and I decide I want to canter, I ask if it's okay, kind of give them a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a warning. Heads up. So that, yeah, heads up, we're going to take off and, and So they canter, don't fall off the know? back when they're uh, that, trying to fiddle around with their saddle pad? Uh-huh, that way they have a chance to say, no, stop, if, you know, for some reason they're not quite ready or or they as you're cantering you know, away. <laughs> yes, as you're cantering away, if, if they're about to get bucked off, they can at least, you know, they get a chance to holler first. <laughs> and when you come to a gate, uh, the best way to deal with gates, I find when I'm riding with somebody, is to take turns. You know, you know, one person gets one gate, the next one gets the next gate and then that way it's not the same person having to get on and off each time unless of course you know one of the riders has a reason why it's you know either hard for them or or their horse or whatever to do that but a lot of times if you're with a friend it's it's good to take turns are now are you, do you run into a lot of gates when you're doing that you know some of the rides I've done rides. I think I remember one ride where we had something like 27 gates in 15 miles. So yes, you're you know you're never going more than a couple of miles till you get to the next gate. And so yes, it can be quite an exercise and you know dealing with with the whole thing. And some gates are easier than others. Some are the kind that you just open up because they're like a steel solid gate that's on a hinge. Others are mm-hmm. cowboy gates where they're barbed wire and they're a lot harder to open and close. <laughs> so, you know, if you're taking turns, then that helps. And sometimes it takes a couple of people. Some of those gates that are really hard to get open or closed, sometimes it can take a couple of people to get them, you know, opened or tightened back up because they are so tight. And it, so it, you know, the, so it's not like the cow, it's not like the cowboy way where they just ride up to him, open the gate, and ride through. Um, no, no, and, and like my own gate at home, I do make my horse practice, you know, opening and closing from horseback. But a lot of gates you just can't do that because they're wire. Some of them, some of the gates I've ridden through on endurance rides, they're actually closed with actual barbed wire and so that's another good reason to ride with gloves (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yes yes you know so the best way to get through a gate is to you know open the gate move through it don't you know diddle around if someone opens a gate for you get through it move out of their way so they can get it closed and then always wait for the person that got the gate to mount back up and then let them resume their position in the group. So if they were ahead of you and you got the gate, you stop and wait for them to get back on and then continue on in the same position that they were in when you got to to the gate. That's kind of the polite thing to do. You don't want to, you know, have someone open the gate and just ride through and keep on going. That's, you know, kind of an inconsiderate thing. And you want, you know, you want to give them the, you know, respect and, and uh, show them that you appreciate what they did for you opening and closing the gate by waiting for them and letting them, you know, continue on where they were. Hmm. Yeah, I bet you that happens all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> you open the gate and they ride through and they're gone. 
I've had that happen, yeah, a few times. And usually it's just people just not realizing it. And then there's times, too, where people have gone, you know, I'm happy to let people go through and continue because I want them to go on ahead and for my horse not to get, you know, excited that now he's in a group that I can let these other horses go on ahead. And and they do. And then um, as far as when you're riding, with and there's other trail users normally most of the time a horse you know someone on a horse has the right away i you know try to let other people have the right away just for my own safety like if someone comes zipping along on a bicycle or a motorcycle i usually will get off and move over off of the trail and let them go by um you know i don't try to force the issue you know because you know i just want to stay safe and let my horse go on ahead. So I always move my horse over. I try to go to the uphill side. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm on a two-way trail, I that try to stay safe. That beats the cliff on the other side. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. The cliff. Exactly. Now, we don't have cliffs in the neighborhood, Karen, but I'm curious with, with your guys, whenever you are being overtaken by uh, motorcycles, quads, bicyclists, do your horses have a preference to watch that vehicle go past them versus letting them pass from behind? Because I've noticed with, um, with my horse, if he is able to literally face whatever it is that's go- about to pass him versus having it come up from behind, there's a real big difference in how he perceives it. If it's coming up from behind him, he tends to get, think it's very scary versus if he can stare it down. It's no big deal. Do you guys do your do your guys show a preference that way? Um, a little bit, you know. A lot of times, as long as you you can hear that they're they're coming, that's the thing with the mountain bike riders is you often don't you can't hear them. They can come up on you right. so quickly and around right. a turn or over a little hill, and then that can startle your horse. Compared to motorcycles, you can usually hear them. And, you know, a lot of times I'll raise my voice and, and start talking, especially if it's a mountain bike rider um, or a hiker. You know, hikers with um, big backpacks on are really scary to horses sometimes. You know, if you come around a well, corner... Well, there's and already a bear on his back trying to eat him. Of course there is. <laughs> it, well, you uh, know, there's a thing on his back. <laughs> and he hasn't shaved in about three months, so he kind of looks like a bear at that point. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, and you know, horses that can deal with all sorts of scary stuff like, you know, firecrackers and gunshots and, you know, motorcycles. If, if someone just standing there with a backpack on can be like the most horrifying thing they've ever seen in their whole entire life, you know. Yeah. And so just by talking to the person, it makes them human yeah. and and the horses can, you know, kind of learn to deal with that. And so yeah. just, you know, at kind of talking. Point, at what point in American culture did the general public decide that whenever they <laughs> are approached by a horse with a human on its back, they must stand perfectly still and silent as if they are just about to pounce and eat the horse. I know. Or (laughs) what they do is they move over off of the trail, and sometimes that causes them to go behind a big tree or a big rock. So now it's kind of like they're hiding around the corner waiting to, you know, pounce like a, a 
Yes, like a predator. And then that really gets the horses, you know, shackles up and they're like, ah. So, yeah. yes, just just talking to people and, you know, trying to be, I always try, you know, it's always a good idea to be respectful of other users on the trail so that they, you know, come back with a good impression of horseback riders. Yes. A hearty good morning. That's always helpful because maybe they'll say good morning back, and then as soon as the horse hears whatever that thing is, talk or going, oh, it's just a weird-looking human. I'm good. Exactly. It is good. Yes, yes. And uh, let's see. Next on my list is if you need to dismount for some reason, try to do it where there's some grass for your horse to graze. You know, so if you're needing to stop, unless it's something that's, you know, an, an immediate thing where you absolutely have to stop right then. I always try to what I call multitasking. If I have to stop and make my horse stand, or you know, sit still for a while because I have to fix something or adjust something or whatever the cause is for me having to stop, I try to do it where my horse can be grazing on some grass or just you know hanging out, getting a chance to eat and or drink. Or take a break, but I try to do it so I'm not, you know, just wasting time. I try to make it, you know, a little bit convenient for the horse as well as for the human. And always try to move off of the trail if you're stopping and getting off of your horse so you're not blocking the trail for others that are coming behind you. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. yeah. And finally, uh, always leave no trace. Try not to cut switchbacks. Stay on the marked trail. So, you know, it might look like an easier way to to pick a shortcut to go down, but if you're coming down a mountain or something, but it's always best to stay on the marked trail, not to cut new paths, because that erodes the, uh, a lot of times it'll erode the the trail footing and, you know, cause it to wash out if you start a new path. So it's always good just to stay on the trail, leave no trace, make sure you don't, you know, drop your trash or whatever if you're, you know, snacking or eating as you go. Kind of, uh, you know, practice the leave no trace ethics when you ride. And those are my trail etiquette recommendations. Very good. And as you said, a lot of them are, are common sense, but sometimes... We humans have to be reminded uh, what you know about common sense. So that's good. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. Very good. Well, thank you for that. And as I said, if you missed part one of that, just go back and listen to the last episode of Endurance Day here on Horses in the Morning. And now uh, every every month, Karen reviews a product that endurance riders use that you use that you find helpful. And of course, one of the things you guys have to do is ride at night, and that's not something that a lot of us do on a regular basis. So tell us about your product this week. Well, this month I I thought I would do um, the red headlamps, red LED headlamps. And these are good not just for when you're riding at night, but any time you're out in your barn or during the winter when, you know, the daylight is short, it's always good to have a little bit of light. And my horses I know really like when I use the red light versus a white light, you know, like Bo, for example, he does not like white lights shining in his face. Like if we go to cross a highway and there's headlights on cars or vehicles coming, he'll just 
automatically turn and face the other way because he doesn't like it. It makes them really uncomfortable. Plus, it kind of blinds them for a little bit. The nice thing with the red headlamp or light is that the horses don't seem to notice it the same way. It doesn't give them that same blindness when you turn it on. So that makes it you know, a little bit better for the horse and, and for the rider because you can actually leave the red light on and you don't have to worry about it, you know, blinding your horse or causing problems for your horse. And which one so, do you use? There's a lot of these out there. Um, there are, and I just picked this one that I found on Amazon.com, and it, it's uh, currently $15.87, and it's the Energizer Pro 7 LED headlamp. So if somebody goes there, they can just... Um, type in at Amazon.com, Energizer Pro 7 LED headlamp, and find it that way. And, you know, and I've used it for about two or three years now, and, um, you know, a few different hundreds, including Tevis. And also I use it at home during the winter when I go out to the barn because it doesn't, like I said, it just doesn't blind the horses the same way as the white lights do. And the horses really like, you know, the the red lights. They don't seem to react to it or, or feel like they're being blinded. Does this blinded. headlamp have both, though, Karen? Does it have the white and the red on this one? It does do, yes, it does do both. Okay. You know, the first, when you turn it on, it goes to red, then it goes to white, and then it goes to a brighter white, and then it goes off. So you have to cycle through it, and I'm sure there are headlamps out there that you probably don't have to do that they probably cost a little more this one's kind of you know a, a you know in the price range of being a little bit more reasonable for for a lot of us it's you know not you know it's under 20 bucks including shipping so it's a you know pretty good price and it works I, like I said I've used it for a couple of years now and and it's nice when you have it on and if you're riding with somebody you know you can ride along together and talk to each other and you have it on your helmet presumably and you're not blinding the other person either and your crew can see you coming from a long way away so it, 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 it works now these usually use triple a batteries karen do you, how long do they last do, will you go a whole ride without you know i don't yes yes the batteries last a long time i don't know if i've even replaced my batteries on mine yet i think it's it's oh, wow. Been, yes, it's, you know, because really you don't have it on a whole lot. Right. You just have it on when you need it. And, uh, you know, because, you know, especially with Bo, he, he prefers to just be able to see on his own. He doesn't really like a lot of light. So uh, he's a little little picky that way. Some horses probably like the lights. And, you know, and, and I found it's hard when people ride with the really bright white lights because they're, you know, they're blinding, you know, the other horses and the other riders. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to see, you know, when it's dark out there and there's this bright white light. But the red light is really nice. You can still see, you know, the markings and the tracks and the trail ahead of you. And, um, you know, you're not, you know, you're not getting that blind, you know, um, lighting coming at you like it is if it's a white light. So that's my um, product review for this month is the um, 
Energizer Pro 7 LED headlamp. And Sounds terrific. Jennifer will put a link to it. Jennifer will put a link to it in our show notes as well. Yeah, these games have gotten so much cheaper. I remember when we were first buying headlamps 10 years ago, they were they were 50 bucks, and now now you can get them anywhere. But uh, this one does uh-huh. look like a little bit better. There are, you definitely get what you pay for with headlamps. There are some really cheap, crappy ones out there. But yes, I'm glad and, it, you, and this one, yes, you can rotate it. It'll tilt, so you can point it where you know, want to see. And, you know, if you do want to, you know, read your map or whatever, you can cycle through and go to the white light so that, you know, you can see something that's printed on a page of paper or something if you need to. Well, and I know there's another piece of equipment that you don't go on a ride without, and that's your Renegade Hoof Boots. Yes. Yes, they're one of our show sponsors, and I uh, love my Renegade boots. We, I, you know, the last ride I did, I did a 50 on both horses one day, and they both used their Renegades on them, and um, they're a great product made in USA. They come in several different colors, which a lot of riders will like. They can, um, you know, match them to their tack or whatever, uh, they give the horses good footy, you know, good, um, what's the, the word I'm looking for, um, traction when you're going over pavement or, um, you know, rocks and stuff like that. It gives you good traction, and they're uh, great for the horses. I've used them on all kinds of rides, multi-days and hundreds, and they're a great product, made in, like I said, made in USA. And they've got uh, the regular Renegade hoof boot and the um, newer uh, Viper model, which has a little bit more tread on it and also comes in several different colors. And if, if someone's interested in that, they just need to call the factory and talk to them. And you can get in touch with them by going to renegadehoofboots.com. And I was just looking on here too. They seem to come in sizes from double lot to uh, to four four WW. So you know yes. you, you got a wide variety of sizes there to choose from, all the way up to what looks like warm blood size, actually. So, right, and they're uh, very customizable. Right. You can, you know, they can help you with fitting. You know, the more difficult to fit horses with oddly shaped hooves or something. There's a lot they can do to modify them to help you fit them to your horse. And they're, you know, it's a great product. I've been using them for years and years and thousands and thousands of miles. And they work really good. They're great. You know, I can just put them on my horse when I need them. And then the rest of the time, my horses are able to stay barefoot. So I don't have to, you know, worry about farrier appointments or, you know, dealing with the shoeing schedule or anything like that really nice terrific very good well thank you karen we appreciate that and you are going to introduce our first guest coming up here i am i'm sorry i just had to drink another another sip of coffee it's you know it's early there uh, it's early here it's only 6 (laughs) 35 in the morning for me um yes we have dr ken marcella He's a 1983 graduate from Cornell Veterinary College. He was a professor of comparative medicine at the University of Virginia before proceeding into private sport horse practice. Within the endurance world, Dr. Marcella has vetted many endurance rides, including 
working as an FEI vet. He's been head treatment vet at the Pan Am Endurance Championship, head vet for the AERC National Championship, and is currently serving as team vet and selector for the USA Endurance team for the upcoming World Endurance or Equestrian Games in Normandy, which are later this summer. His interests include muscle problems in sport horses, rehabilitation, and other performance issues. All right, let's take a listen uh, to... Actually, we did this interview. I wanted to mention this. We did this interview. We had to get this done a little earlier because Dr. Ken's very busy. And the connection wasn't... I don't know where he was. It sounded like he was in a stadium of some sort. But uh, I tried to clean it up and make it as good as I could. You can hear him. You can hear everybody. But there is a little bit of background noise on his end. So I just wanted to warn everybody of that. So here's Dr. Ken Marcella. Good morning, um, Dr. Marcella. Thank you for joining us on the show this morning. How are you? Glad to be here. Good. How are you guys? Doing really good. Well, one of the things we wanted to first start asking you about real quick is about the WEG selection trials. What can you tell us about uh, that procedure and how that's been going? Well, it's a, um, a multi-step process. Uh, like most selection teams for, for picking a team, you start out with a, a long list or a suggested list of people that want to nominate themselves and their horses for inclusion in a team. Um, and, and I think every discipline does it a little bit differently. What we wanted to try to do from the insurance standpoint was to be really sure that we were sending very sound horses to compete. So one of the things we required horses that were interested in competing to do is to go and uh, have a complete uh, pre-purchase, or not pre-purchase, but a complete sports medicine soundness exam done uh, before they came to any of the trials. There's no point in getting a horse here having it have an issue and lose time going back and trying to then start out and trying to figure out lamenesses. So we did ask mm-hmm. that the horses uh, go to a, an approved clinic and get a complete workup, um, even to the point of doing MRIs and centigraphies if it was necessary, and obviously x-rays and ultrasounds, to try to make sure that we were having horses coming that we were going to consider that were totally sound. There's so many other factors that you can uh, take care of and some you can't control, but the one thing you can control is making sure that there isn't a horse that has underlying problems. For me personally, one of the really interesting things about this is shows perhaps a, a difference in the trend as far as veterinary clinics go. Um, three years ago, the universities were the, were the primary sites for a lot of this work. And interesting enough, almost uh, no one, I think maybe one or two, picked the university to get their workups done. They were all done at private sports medicine clinics, which kind of shows a shift in the veterinary industry toward more specialty clinics that are oriented toward more of the performance horses. So that was the first step. All the horses got the exam. Mm-hmm. If there were problems that needed to be taken care of, then they were taken care of. And then all the horses came to um, a trial event where we, uh, and we, by we, I mean the chef to keep, Emma Ross, uh, Dwight Hooten, who's the uh, team veterinarian, and Stewart, uh, myself, and there's a, a number of, of non-veterinary selectors. But primarily the veterinarians took a look at these horses prior to the event, um, did essentially what was a pre-purchase exam on these horses, uh, including uh, watching the trot out and all the flexions and so forth. Then the horses were required to do a certain distance at a certain speed um, to show that they could compete at that level. And then the next day we did the exams all over again to essentially look at the horses and see how they had fared and if we could put a finger on any other problems. After that point, there were uh, a little bit more fine-tuning and the horses that had some issues were sent off to have perhaps a little bit more diagnostics on those particular issues, uh, there will be a number of site visits 
that the selectors will do across the country. They'll try to pick uh, a West Coast section, a Midwest section, a, new, a Northeast, a Southeast, and send mm-hmm. the selectors there to meet with certain horses that are then getting on to what would be the short list. And I think that's going to be, numbers-wise, I'm not sure where that is, but that's going to be a, a much shorter list. And then out of that will come the eventual decision for the, the horses that will go to France. How many are we talking at this point in the game? How many, How many horses? horses started out on the long list? Yeah. There were about 17. And how many will you end up with? They're going to go ahead and pick four or five, maybe six with an alternate, something in that range. No less than four, obviously, and maybe up to six to send. But it's very expensive to send it. The endurance budget this year is uh, really tight uh, through the USDF. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, if anybody's got an interest in, and wants to see the sport, the sport promoted, uh, they are interested in any and all benefactors because it's a tough sport. Uh, we're competing against countries where the sport is totally subsidized. A lot of the riders are uh, nationally subsidized. And, and in this country, a lot of the riders, they're individuals. Uh, it, it's a person in their horse that loves to do endurance. They go out and train and try to get on the team. And we'll be competing against countries where the teams are set and the horses and riders have been sponsored, and that's all they're doing. So it really is a little bit different in terms of how we put our team together versus some of the other countries that we're competing against. Now, during the trials that you just had over Easter weekend, I understand the weather had an effect on how things Right. The trial we had was in in South Carolina, and Uh what we wanted to do is do about 75 miles on track that was uh, predetermined to be uh, conducive to us being able to do the right kind of time to evaluate the horses. And unfortunately, it started raining and raining and raining. A lot mm-hmm. of the trail, and they, they did the best job that they absolutely could at this facility, but a lot of the trail got too wet to be usable. So we did two things. We decided to push the trial back a day to give it an, an extra day to dry out and to shorten the distance, which made it a little bit more problematic. But it, it turned out that... Uh, uh, the trail dried exceptionally well. The weather the next day was, was really good, and we were able to get some really useful information. It didn't start raining until okay. after we had done all the examinations on the horses the day before, so we were really reluctant to lose all that information um, and postpone it or cancel completely. So we ended up having uh, a decent enough time, a big requirement for people to change their schedules, and you know, I feel badly for all the people that are trying to get this done because they have jobs and they have other things going on, and when you sure. ask them to... Uh, stay an extra day, it's uh, time and money, and that's really difficult. And, again, that goes to the differences between this and a country where all these riders are working essentially for the team and that's their job, and it would be a different situation. But it worked out well, and I think we got good information from that. Oh, good. Okay, so that leads me into the next question I have for you, is if you were to assess an endurance horse or any horse that's come in from an um, intense workout, what parameters or what things would you look at to determine if that horse was fit to continue? Well, one of the first things that you've got to be aware of is what kind of a day are you dealing with, because that makes a big difference. We all know when, when we're exercising, it's a lot easier uh, on a mildly cool day with a nice breeze and, and you're not mm-hmm. necessarily as tired or whatever. Uh, horses, because of the intense muscle activity, generate a tremendous amount of heat. So the heat and humidity, especially in the southeast, become a crucial deal. So on a day that has problems with heat and humidity, I'm much more concerned about a horse's hydration status, the respiratory rate, the heart rate, and how well that horse is handling the environmental conditions. Now, if it's a ride that's happening in 
cooler weather, but it's also maybe a little slippery and wet, and I've got a rocky terrain or terrain with a lot of uh, ups and downs and roots and, and rocks, I'm way more concerned about injuries and problems with tendons and ligaments and feet and things of that nature versus a, a, a hot, sandy trail uh, on a different sort of day. So you, you know that going into it, and you get a chance mm-hmm. to assess what may be the most particular problem for that day. The other good thing is as a veterinarian on the line working these rides, you're seeing lots of horses, and you can see trends. And you start seeing that the horses presented, presenting to you are starting to show a much higher heart rate or the gut sounds are really slowing down. You can correlate that and see, okay, the weather is affecting them or at this point in the ride they're working harder, and you have a baseline. So if a horse mm-hmm. comes in that's really divergent from that baseline, it makes it a little easier to spot. So we need to make sure that these horses are eating as they go through the ride because they need to be maintaining more electrolytes and water than anything else, and the gut has to be moving for them to absorb stuff. You really can't give them electrolytes and have it sit in the gut. It pools more water into the gut. So if they're eating and moving through the trail well and you have decent gut sounds, then whatever you're giving them, they'll be able to go ahead and uh, rehydrate and re-electrolyte themselves and, and be much more um, comfortable and, and uh, free from having metabolic problems down the road. So really interested in, in heart rate, respiratory rate, hydration, gut sounds, and then the lameness issues. Um, lameness issues are lower on the, on the list, not because of priority, but because it's, uh, you know, it's rare that you're going to have a, a catastrophic lameness issue other than a horse that, that falls off the trail or so forth. But a uh, bruise, a strain, even a tendon, uh, that's something that you know, the horse will be there for. But a metabolic issue that leads you to a severe tie-up in kidney issues or to um, a, a severe colic, those are really crucial issues. So we, we really look hard at the metabolics. And in the heat and humidity, how soon would you like to see a horse recover and to what type of pulse rate? Well, the horses have to be 64 to come into the vet check area. I always look at the cards and see how long the horses have been in off the trail. Mm-hmm. So let's say they have a 40-minute hold, and I have a core horse that comes up to me, and he's 64, so he's met parameters, but he's already been in for 30 minutes of that 40-minute hold. I'm a little bit more concerned about that horse as a horse who, who comes off the trail and it's five minutes, they pour some water on him and he's eating hay and he walks up to me and he's at 64. Uh, to right. me, that's a, that horse is in much better shape. So I look at how long it takes him to come down, not just that they've come down for that. And um, we always do a CRI, which is the cardiac mm-hmm. recovery index. So the horse, we take the heart rate, the horse is trotted at 125 feet, uh, trotted back 125 feet, and within a minute we take the heart rate again. So it's been proven to be a fairly reasonable indicator of stress. And if that heart rate mm-hmm. is substantially higher on the second pulse, then the horse is not dealing with stress, whether it be heat, humidity stress, metabolic stress, or lameness stress, and that's always a red flag to kind of see. So it's hard to give you an indication of, you know, how quickly I want to see it come down or what I want it to come down to because I'll accept different things on, on different days. There are some days where the weather is absolutely perfect, and horses come into the vet check area, and I, I swear people have been carrying them up through the trail because they don't look like they work <laughs> at all. So you really have right. to be aware of the environment. And the sport as a whole is getting much more technical. These horses are so much better conditioned. The riders are, are very savvy about what's going on. I always joke that a, a good endurance rider is probably at the level of almost a fourth-year fourth year vet student when it comes to assessing metabolics and dealing with some of the physiology. Mm-hmm. Okay, now um, the last topic I wanted to cover um, is about um, rehabbing a horse after going through colic surgery. My horse just had colic surgery a month ago, and I was just approved today. I'm allowed to start jogging with him and taking him farther. Um, so let's 
um, if you can tell us a little bit about that, about post-surgery recoveries and horses going back into performance work that have had colic surgeries. Okay. Um, and first off, all colics are not the same and all colic surgeries aren't the same. But one of the things that always kind of intrigued me was the reports you got back from most surgeons. This was state-of-the-art state standard practice for most surgical practices. When you have a colic surgery, an open abdomen that you have to close, it's 30 days stall rest, 30 days to small paddock, 30 days light work before you put the horse back to work. And I kept thinking, why 30, 30, 30? Where did that come from? And, and looking at the research, there's absolutely nothing. It's just 30 days of the month, and it seemed like a really nice, reasonable deal. Uh-huh. Um, so we got to thinking, is it really necessary to take that much time? Uh, surgeons are the most conservative people out there sometimes, and they will give you the most conservative response, and most horses will be fine with that sort of a program. But could horses come back to work quicker if necessary? And when we looked into the research, there actually was some work done at the University of Tennessee looking at incision line stability, and they really saw that uh, if it's done correctly, and by correctly, and, and we're assuming that there's no issues and there's no infection in the surgery mm-hmm. line after the surgery, and that at the time of surgery, the surgeon does not have to excessively manipulate intestines. It doesn't mean that there's a lot of things pulling through the insertion line, a lot of stretching. If it's not excessively manipulated, that after you know, two to two and a half weeks, the lineal, the, the midline incision area, is about as strong as it was before. So wow. that made us think that maybe horses could actually come back a little bit quicker than otherwise, push the, push the rehab. If you look at human recovery and in looking at professional sports, not your average you know, person out on the street, but if you're looking at elite athletes, which some of these horses are, uh, elite human athletes a lot of times can push the healing process quite a bit. And we thought, well, maybe we could get some of that as well, too. So in talking with uh, Dr. John Peroni at the University of Georgia, uh, a surgeon there, he, he kind of felt the same way. So we came up with some guidelines and some suggestions that people should always ask about. And you should always ask about uh, what did the incision line look like, how much trauma was there during the time of surgery uh, on that incision line. And then you might be able to make your adjustments to rehab a little bit differently so that you can shorten the time uh, in a box stall. And, and that's the other thing, too, a horse in a... 12 by 12 stalls, spending a lot of time walking around in a circle and doing a lot of torque. Right. Uh, I don't advocate having horses out running around, but you know, after the two, two and a half week time frame, getting that horse out and doing controlled walking and controlled light exercise actually is going to be even more conducive to healing than just standing in a stall. So there are a lot of things you can do to speed it up. And certainly horses that come back from college surgery with little to no problems, even insurance companies will... Uh, agree that if a horse has no issues one year after a cog surgery, they insure them as if they never had the surgery. Wow. So depending okay. on the type of surgery and whether there was any intestine removed and so forth. So the, the surgical state of the art and what uh, surgeons can do nowadays is so gr- greatly improved that these horses are coming out and with an ability to really go back and, and be quite functional athletes. Too. There's been jumpers and, and track horses and so forth that have all you know, had similar issues and come back and done, done absolutely fine. It's, it's got to be on a case-by-case basis, but try to, I would encourage people to have a discussion with the surgeon, talk a little bit more about that, and, and maybe, you know, investigate that a little bit and try to be a, a little bit more aggressive if you can in terms okay. of rehabbing the horse. Yes, he just gave me permission. I can start uh, letting my horse trot and taking, I've been doing three miles of walking a day. I can increase that. So at the end of this, I'm going to be in better shape. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of the side effects, too. And if you have a horse that's – there are plenty of horses that I know of that my clients will tell me that are better controlled under saddle than they are in turnout. 
that horse yes. needs, if, if, once you let go of that halter, that horse is going to run, walk, trot, canter, spin, turn. If the horse can't tolerate that, then you're better off, and if you can control it better on his back, much better to do that in a nice slow format as part of your rehab. Right, yes, especially endurance horses because they're sure. a little bit different than a typical horse. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time out of, out of your busy schedule to join us. Um, could you give us a website all. address? Um, you have a the, website? You can, well, you can visit on Facebook and so forth from that. Okay. Uh, Kenneth Marcel and DVM. All right, very good. Well, that interview you heard was with Dr. Ken Marcella, and he is a graduate of Cornell University. Very interesting guy. We could have him back anytime. I, I enjoyed uh, the conversation with him. You're listening to Horses in the Morning. I am here with Karen Chatton, and Coach Jen is in the producer chair today. And we are bringing you this episode, this endurance episode of Horses in the Morning, like we do every single month. And I also wanted to mention that tomorrow morning we will have the EquityMFG.com Celebrity Trivia Challenge. And we have a very special guest tomorrow morning. And uh, he is world famous, I would say, for his hanging balls. That's right. We have Uncle Jimmy's of Uncle Jimmy's brand products on with us tomorrow morning. And we've all joked about, and he advertises here on the show. So we're going to have the man himself. Yes, there is an Uncle Jimmy uh, and yes, there will be a lot of jokes tomorrow morning about his hanging balls and his uh, licky things and his sticky buns. So he will be here tomorrow morning for the Celebrity Trivia Challenge. If you would like to play some Wednesday and have the chance of winning a terrific prize, then you can just hop on over to horsesinthemorning.com, click on the banner in the middle of the page. It'll take about two minutes to register, actually about ten seconds to register, and we'll contact you and say, can you play coming up, and you have the opportunity to say yes or no. That simple. Well, Karen, that was a very good interview. You know, there's a lot going on in the endurance world is getting all the buzz right now because of, uh, not necessarily a good thing, but because of all the controversy over at the FEI. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what is happening over there? We have Karen with us. Karen, are you there? Jennifer, are you there? Is anybody there? I'm here. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm here. I, there he you is. Put me, you, you put me on mute, and apparently I, I unmuted myself. Okay. <laughs> so, so you just can't keep me quiet. That's it. You, can figure, you figured it out. So what was I the story? It, I figured it out. Well, it, it, it is a complicated issue. We've, we've had, you know, the board of directors with AERC has, uh, you know, they they came up with a letter or a, I'm not sure exactly if it was a policy, a letter, whatever that, that they sent or that they they made stating their position that they want to see you know something done on this issue of horse welfare within the FEI endurance community, especially with the Middle Eastern countries, which you know they've got a high rate of you know fatalities and horse problems. There's um, rumors of cheating and ringers and all sorts of stuff going on, and it, it just keeps continuing. And you know, and it, it's really hard. It's so unfair for our endurance team to try to compete. You know, how do you go and compete against you know other countries that are cheating? That they're not following the rules. They're drugging their horses. And they're doing all sorts of things that, that aren't really on the up and up. 
and, and it just it hopefully it, at some point you know something is going to be done about it but it's a, an unfortunate situation because it's just so hard for our for our team to to try to go and compete against you know that sort of thing with the the cheating and and that sort of stuff that keeps going on and you know one of the main things that complicates this issue even more is that you have the richest man in the world is is right in the heart of it yes. so i uh-huh. mean you know, when you got the guy who's you basically could uh, buy the FEI if he wanted to, um, right? He, and and it just his wife it. That <laughs> keeps getting elected, and and what is she, his third wife or something like that? <laughs> is she second or third? I don't remember which. Second but, or third? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it just complicates yeah. the issue, and that certainly has been part of the conversation and part of the problem as they've been having is, mm-hmm. you know, how how do you segregate out, you know, the guy who's, who could fund the whole sport and, you know, keep him out of the conversation because he is one of the targets of the conversation. Right, so, right. Yeah, because there, yeah. there, is, there is a huge conflict of interest there. And they keep, you know, it's like uh, who's guarding the hen house, you know. Right, right. Uh, conflict of interest in politics, Karen? Oh, you're kidding. No, that that never doesn't happen. happen. No. Never, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, anytime, we always say this, anytime you have more than two people, you have politics. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, people people are going to not agree all of the time, and they certainly, they certainly don't always They're agree not. all of the time. No, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's do this let's go right into our next interview because uh uh it's about that time and we also had to record this one ahead because we didn't want to make her get up at three in the morning which is what it would be where she lives so right and it was actually it was morning for for her we got uh uh, her name julie white she's an australian endurance rider and she was heading she was actually on her way to an endurance ride the morning for her that we talked her and it was actually evening for us and I just want to say congratulations to her because she ended up um, winning that ride and getting best condition oh, on yay. Yay. Oh, that's terrific. Okay, yeah. so this is um, So we brought her good this, luck, is that what you're saying? I hope we did and, and I'd really <laughs> love to have her back on because we didn't really get to a lot of the issues or the topics that we both wanted to kind of talk about with with the differences between Australian endurance riding and USA endurance riding and some of the difference in our rules, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of striking differences. There's a lot of things that they do uh, that are a lot stronger on their horse welfare in some ways than others compared to us. And it's all just very interesting. But this is Julie White. And I could listen to her accent all day. That's the other one. Yes, I love that Aussie accent. <laughs> and okay, so Julie's been riding endurance since 1984. She's ridden in every state in Australia and has ridden in the UAE and in the USA. She's completed the Tevis Cup twice. She served on the Australian Endurance Riders Association National Committee. She's very interested in, in, in introducing the sport to newbies, especially juniors. Her favorite event is the one-day 100-mile ride, and she's placed in the top 10 at the top at the Tom Quilty, which is their national event, you know, that, that, that's their equivalent to our Tevis. 
and she's won um, various state and regional championships. And uh, so here is our interview with Julie. Good morning, Julie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, one of the things we wanted to talk with you about is a little bit about the differences between endurance riding in the United States and Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about endurance riding where you are? Like, how many riders are there? How many states or regions? And how big your rides are and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Well, here in Australia, we have uh, approximately 3,000 registered endurance riding members um, across Australia. And each state has its own division. So depending on which state you live in as to which division you would join as a member, I'm here in South Australia, so I'm a South Australian member. What are the size of your rides? How many entries the do they The size do? of the rides, very good question. So Queensland and New South Wales are our two biggest states. So they tend to have quite large numbers at their rides. They do have the majority of members here in Australia. So they can have anything from 100 to 200 horses entered in a weekend. Um, although further north in Queensland, in the more sort of outback regions, they do have some smaller rides where there might only be, you know, 20 or 30 competitors. But um, quite often they, they do tend to have what we consider quite large entries. So um, obviously in South Australia, we have probably the opposite end of the spectrum with, um, yeah, probably 30 or 40 or maybe 50 horses on a weekend. So it is a significant difference. And and what about, um, what kind of entry fees do you usually pay? Entry fee, yeah, sure. Um, for a 50 miler, or we call it an 80K, usually between $80, maybe $100. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 100 mile rides, um, which here... When we talk 100 milers, we, we all mean 100 miles in one day. We we very rarely have two-day 100 milers here. I think you have mm-hmm. quite a few of those there. And the, the fee for those can vary from oh, sort of 200 up to $400, depending um, on, you know, the right organizer's costs and so on. How's that compare, Karen, with here? Um, it's... It- actually pretty similar it varies a little bit here by region to region i think some of the rides in the west have to pay higher fees for their camping areas and so that pushes some of the entries up over 100 for a 50 miler and then you know your um, average 100 is probably in the same ballpark as theirs the bigger more specialty rides like tevis you know they're considerably more expensive because there's a lot more involved now, Julie, tell us about, like, your paperwork that's required for traveling with your horses. Here we have to get health certificates, like, every 30 days and Coggins every six months to a year. Do you guys have to do all of that? No, we don't, Karen. We Each state here has its own, I guess, um, sort of department, a government department that has requirements of what you can and can't bring into that state at the border and obviously varies from state to state so just to give you an example you know New South Wales are very uh, let's say hot on um, cattle tick Um, so they would want you to spray 
um, if you're coming from Queensland into New South Wales. I guess what I'm trying to say is each state it has different requirements. It's not difficult to meet the requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we you just advise people to get in contact with the, the, the department and find out what they'll need to do. For me here in South Australia, I can transport a horse to New South Wales or Victoria across the border without needing to do anything at all and back okay. again. In terms of the horse, so no paperwork, no spraying, no drenching. Um, you know, we have liver fluke that Western Australia certainly doesn't want. So if we were going there, we would need to organise a, a drench for, for that travel. But um, So there are things. It's not difficult to meet the requirements. It's a matter of, um, you know, finding out before you go and, and making sure you have done what you need to do. And there would be a little bit of paperwork to go through through with it but not a not a like what you're describing to me right good well that that's good that helps keep your costs a little bit less now tell us about your log books i've seen a couple of them and i think they're really you know in a way they're kind of a good idea so tell us what's in your your log books for your horses okay well personally i'm very proud of our log book system here i think it's an absolute a marvellous idea. It's a running record of the horse's, um, I guess, performance. Um, there's two kinds. There's a blue one, which the horse has if he's a novice horse. So novice horse is considered um, not considered an endurance horse until he has completed three times uh, 50-mile rides. I'll talk in your miles. Um, at this point, he goes from a blue... Uh, novice book up into a, what we call a yellow endurance oh, book. Okay. Um, in that book, there's just about everything you could possibly need. So once he's a, a qualified endurance ra- a horse, he does need to be microchipped, so that's a must, um, which is, I think, a step in the right direction for helping with identifying grey geldings of various ages and so on. Um, it has quite a few columns for the metabolic parameters, which... Um, is not difficult to fill in. It's a wonderful record. Um, all that information does go into our new AERA space, I guess, uh, what is it, Karen? It's a record-keeping So it's like um, you're writing with, like a, it's, is it like a vet card and you actually carry it with you while you ride? It's very much like a vet card. Okay. Um, it has your times in, your weight carried, the division you're riding, you know, all your pulses throughout the ride, anything, you know, pretty much that would probably normally go on a vet card. But there are at least a dozen columns for metabolic, so mucous memories, capillary real full, you know, blah, blah, um, which, you know, we see as a really good thorough record, particularly of, of metabolics. And the vets can then use that book. Um, they can look back in the book if they have a horse at a ride and they can look back and see how it went at its mm-hmm. previous ride, they can see what time it took, how much weight carried, how it's scored in its metabolic. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it seems to be a very good system and, and works well. And it's, it's a record of the horse. So, you know, different riders' names can be placed in each, each horse's logbook, obviously, depending. Uh, I hope that answers that for you. Okay, and you mentioned the novice books are blue, and then when they move up, they change color. 
explain what it takes for a horse to go through the novice category to move up and then be called an endurance horse. Okay, so um, basically the horse and rider you need to separate because some people do get a little bit confused as to when they become go from novice to endurance. So the horse and rider both need to progress through that that sort of qualifying system. So if you look at the horse, the horse needs to do three eighty or fifty mile rides. Uh, it is a time limited thing, so. He needs to do 380s to progress to, from a novice horse to an endurance horse. But we limit um, the time that you can do that with him. For example, if you go to three rides in three consecutive weekends, mm-hmm. we can't upgrade you to endure, endurance the following weekend. We have a 90-day... Uh, how's best to describe? So we slow the system down. You could go to a ride every weekend for three weeks. Your horse okay. would be ready to be qualified, but we won't give you that yellow book um, and we won't let you do more than, I think, a maximum of four rides until the 90 days from when he first, uh, I believe, completed his first ride. So... I guess what I'm trying to say is we can we can slow that system. So not only does he need to, I guess, successfully complete those three rides, but he can't be rushed through and okay. go from novice to endurance. One thing that comes to mind, Karen, is he is also speed limited. So as a novice horse, he's not allowed to go any quicker than I don't know what it is in miles per hour, 14 kilometres per hour here. It's actually a fairly generous speed, so mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, first time out, obviously, are going to go slower than that anyway, probably about, what's that, seven mile an hour or something. So he, he's, he's as a novice horse, he's speed limited, and, uh, you know, there is a time factor as well. So that is pretty much, I guess, for the horse, he can then be... An endurance horse, he can enter uh, longer than uh, 120 kilometre rides or 75 mile rides. So as a novice horse, he is not allowed to enter any more than 120 or 75 mile rides. So there's a few little things in there. When you look at it, it it seems to make pretty good sense, we think. (laughs) Probably sounds a little complex for your listeners, but... um, Hey, Julie. You know, a new horse. Hi. I do have some questions for you here. Um, okay. A couple questions. <laughs> One is, are you riding mostly Arabians, or are you using the same horses as here in the United States? Mostly Arabians, partbreds. Uh, there's a few quarter horses, Appaloosas, Australian stock horses. We had one mule once that did very well. I don't believe there's any mules at all going around. Hasn't been for some years now. Um and no I gated know, horses? I know of one friend who I think has a couple of gated horses um, in New South Wales. So possibly they may have been out a little bit, but not in in a significant numbers. No, certainly not. Well, now I have a, I, I'm in charge of asking the, the hard, serious <laughs> questions. So, okay. Uh, so what kind of wildlife do you run across? Are you, do you have kangaroo <laughs> problems, snake problems, well, we alligator problems? We well, alligators, no. The crocodiles are all uh, up in the Northern Territory and north. So. Okay, all right. <laughs> 
Although I did, I did have to veer hard left to to uh, stop running over a yabby, which is kind of like a little small crayfish, or they live in the dams here, and um, you know, live and let live. So kangaroos are a real problem. We have a problem in that we love them, but they tend to bore them out of the bush um, without warning, of course. That's what I was hungry. wondering. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking to scare well, the crap frankly, out of your horse. Well, they do, and um, I've had one leap straight over the neck of the horse from a bank. and <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't connect. And uh, look, yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. They're, 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 they're widespread. They, they really do are responsible for a lot of people coming off. Um, but we forgive them. We forgive them. Now, um, do you have, like, we have Tevis here, which is like the ultimate, right? It's our Super Bowl. Uh, here in the United States, do you have a do you have a, a ride like Tevis there? That would be your Super Bowl, your big well, ride. Uh, we have a big ride. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's like Tevis. It's the Tom Cordy National Championship. It's a hundred miles in one day, and it is our premier event here. The how many entries itself, do, does that get? Does that get a lot of entries? Uh, in the bigger states, it does. So it used to always be held in New South Wales every year, like Tevis, over the same course. The uh, the powers that be got together and decided that they would move this ride as a travelling ride, and each state could host the ride. So depending on what state is hosting the ride, so this year it's in Western Australia, quite a long way from the majority of the membership. So their numbers may be 100, 130. Entries in Queensland could get up to 250, 300 entries. So um, it certainly isn't comparable, I guess, in in technical difficulty, Um, um, but it's a a wonderful event. We we do have another event here called Shazada, which I'm passionate about. It's a marathon ride. So that's uh, that's another one to look for for any of your listeners out there. Google Shazada and... Come on down. Right. <laughs> there you and go, that's, Karen. That's like our pioneer rides where they ride five days of 50s in a oh, row. Okay. And the difference is there, Glenn, is they have to complete all five days to get credit for any of it. Oh, okay. So you you have to do the whole course. Same horse or different horses? Same, same horse. Same horse. Same and, horse. And it's in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. So it's absolutely stunning country. And it's a, it's a real... A, a real horsemanship test. So that's um, that's our two big rides here. And but as and you, for your Tevis, wow. <laughs> yes, and you've done all of those rides, and you've done Tevis, right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. What did you think of Tevis? Tevis, it was absolutely wonderful. Not only the ride itself, the whole. Uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? So from the get-go, the feeling and camaraderie, the mm-hmm. idea that just, I think just getting there and being prepared to take it on is is some kind of, I guess, <laughs> crazy as we all are. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, so the ride itself is unbelievable. It's, you know, it's beautiful, it's tough, it's challenging, it's, it's, it's all of those things. But I, I did I did notice the feeling amongst the organisers and the other competitors of of 
the true meaning of, of, of just being prepared to have a go and take it on and, and you know, whether you get through or not, I think you've... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just happy you yeah. came out alive. That's <laughs> well, I did, I did. I did purchase the uh, the helicopter Capstar helicopter. There's a plug for Capstar. Uh, <laughs> helicopter insurance for the 24 hour because I figured, you know, okay. you, and they could always yeah, what's that? bring me home in a bag. What's I know, that? and we're so, all, we're we're just about out of time already. It went by so fast, but we I do want to ask you about your. Give us a description of your crew and what you call them. Ah, our crew. Well, our crew here are generally known as strappers, which is, I think we'd have to look up good old Google there to find out where we first <laughs> invented that word. But we all would love a strapper, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been some funny jokes made about it, but anyhow, it really is the same thing, one and the same, and I think there's some... Oh, let's say elite riders here that would love to, to cross over the crew and and think that, that you know a strapper is uh, a little a little too what's the word Aussie and but um, <laughs> no look that's what we know them as and and of course we adore them and we need them and we love them and we pamper them and we tell them how wonderful they are quite clearly we we couldn't do it without them so uh, they're our strappers and they take care of the horse and. And, and then if they've got any time left, they might take care of us as well. So, Yeah, that's great. Well, Julie, we're already out of time. It goes by quickly. So thank you again. We really appreciate you joining us. And good luck on all of your future rides. And I hope to meet you someday in person. Oh, same, same. Thank you very much. And thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Julie. Well, well, there that you was go, fun. Karen. Yeah, Are that was back? fun. She's, yeah, she's, a, she's delightful, isn't she? Yes, I'd like to have her back because there's a lot that we didn't get to. We ran out of time. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about some of the differences in our rules, like with the drug policy. Uh, AERC doesn't allow, you know, pretty much anything, whereas they allow omeprazole, which is an ulcer, um, medication for horses, that's allowed in Australia, but not in the United States. They also have penalties when a horse gets pulled or does not complete a ride for any reason. They are assigned a certain amount of points, and those points can accumulate, and after so many points, they can be suspended or or whatever, or they're required to take a certain amount of time off, which is something that, you know, we haven't really done in this country. And I think that's just kind of an interesting thing to explore or just to, you know, to look at to see the differences in in the same sport from one country to another. I think that's all very interesting and, uh, you know, something that we can look at, you know, different ways of doing the same thing and, and um, you know, providing the safest uh, possible way to, to do this sport for our horses. So it's all, um, to me, it's, it's all very interesting and fun. All right, cool. Very okay. good. All right, and um, Julie had sent me a link uh, to um, a little um, blurb that was written by another Australian writer um, named Bob Sample, and I'd like to read that real quick. And uh, here it goes. 
Uh, Although we consider endurance riding as a sport, we know that it is something more. Our challenge is more than a test against course, clock, and other competitors. It is a test of something deep within each of us, a test of our spirit, our compassion, and our communication with the creature with whom we share our life during the long hours and miles of training and competition. Having ridden many miles with competitors I respect, it is clear to me that what is most that what is almost a spiritual union exists between these riders and their horses. There is a oneness which transcends the usual human animal relationships. The rider has a high degree of awareness towards his horse and it is returned by the horse or and this is returned by the horse. We live in a world where young people are searching for values not always provided by the existing social structure. For many, an involvement with horses has brought the feeling of being closer to nature. The trusting, loving, working relationship between horse and human through the ages began to diminish as transportation and farming became mechanized. However, the relationship with horses is being renewed in leisure activities. I would like to suggest that it is time to let people know what they can gain by becoming involved with endurance riding. There must be many young people who would add to our ride numbers once they became interested. So let us take the opportunity to spread the word about our sport and hope that they too can experience with their horses many hours of happy riding together. Why do you think it, that was very good. Why do you think it is that, uh, that, why aren't more kids attracted to it is my question. Is it just because, you know, they got, they got so much going on now and they're playing soccer and they're doing several other things at the same time? But, you know, horse-crazy girls are horse-crazy girls. They want to spend as much time as they can in the saddle. Or is it too hard for the parents? What do you think? Uh, it's probably a combination of things. You know, endurance riding does take a commitment. It's, it's not easy. It's never going to be easy. It's, it's a lot of work, you know, just, you know, having a horse and taking care of a horse, it's work, you know, it's, it's a a commitment and a dedication and, you know, plus then there's the financial commitment, you know, on, on the part of the parents, they've got to, you know, you know, you're, you're either in it or you're not, you know, and endurance is kind of an all consuming type of thing, or it can be, and, you know, I would think, especially for a, a child, it's, um, you know, a, a big commitment. But, you know, like what I just read, that piece, you know, kind of says a lot because, you know, it's such a good, rewarding experience for kids to to get involved with endurance. You know, I think it really helps shape their futures and, and they learn so much and they gain so much out of, participating in endurance and, you know, just being responsible for taking care of their horses. It's a, a, a pretty amazing thing. And talk about self-discipline, learning self I don't. I think endurance riders learn self-discipline better than any other sport. I mean, because, <laughs> boy, <laughs> 14 yes. hours in the saddle will teach you that. <laughs> uh-huh. And you have to do it for your own reasons. You know, you can't do it for anybody else. It's you know, it's got to be for your own, you know, self that that you get involved in doing something like this because it is, it's a, it's a lot of work and it's a commitment, but you get so much out of it that, you know, you're not going to get that, I don't think, from, you know, doing anything else, any other kind of hobby. Endurance is, you know, 
I think, one of the best sports there is to do with a horse. And you can't, you can't pick it up and drop it. Like, you could go do a hunter test, and, and uh, you could, you know, you could slough off a little bit on the work with your horses and then go do another hunter test in a month. You can't do that with endurance. Um, it requires you to keep at it. Right, right. It's a, it's a commitment, but, you know, it's, uh, you learn a lot from it and, and everything you learn. It's, it's definitely an important life lesson that, you, you know, you're not going to get it, that kind of satisfaction out of most other things in life. That's why I think it, it's such an addicting sport. <laughs> well, tell us there are a bunch of rides coming up. Where can people find out if there's a ride close to them so they can get started, even with uh, one of those shorter rides? There are. We have more than 40 rides on the calendar in the next month. So, you know, ride season's well underway. You can go to aerc.org and click on ride calendar and look up by your region. There's, like, I think seven regions in the AERC, so you can kind of look at, you know, your region or if you're close to a neighboring state, look in a close-by region to you and look up those rides. And you can you know, enter or you can go and volunteer and help. There's, you know, lots of opportunities out there to participate. Also, AERC has a really great um, mentor program. Uh, there's a listing of experienced, capable riders that have volunteered to help new members or people that are interested in the sport. And if you contact AERC, like I said, go to aerc.org or call them toll-free at 866-271-2372, and they will help put you um, in touch with somebody in your area that can help you get started and mentor you. Very good. Well, thank you, Karen. And speaking of time flying by, it has again, and we're running up to the end of the show. And, I, you know, I just wanted to remind everybody that they can listen to past episodes of all of our shows, all 11 here on the Horse Radio Network, by just getting the app. So if you have iOS or Android, and all you endurance riders out there, this is the perfect thing to do to while away the hours that you're on the trail because we have over 3,000 episodes now here on the Horse Radio Network. We could keep you busy for many 100-mile rides. Uh, just go download the app. It's free. It's easy. It's in the iOS or Android app store. Search for Horse Radio Network. All our different shows are on there. If you want to find past episodes specifically of Horses in the Morning, then just go to horsesinthemorning.com. You can search Karen's name in the search bar or just search Endurance, and all the past episodes of the Endurance show uh, will come up, and you can take a listen to all. We've had some great guests on over the period of time here. So if you miss them and you want to take a listen, that's the best way to do it. And, of course, we're here Monday through Friday live every morning at 9 a.m. We'll be back tomorrow morning with Jamie Jennings out of Phoenix. And we'll be doing the Celebrity Trivia Challenge brought to you by EquityMFG.com. And Uncle Jimmy of Uncle Jimmy's Hanging Balls fame will be here. So he will be our celebrity tomorrow playing for a charity. And one of our listeners will be joining us to play in the Trivia Challenge. I think that's about it, Karen, except you have to give out your website. Um, yes, my <clears throat> gosh, I'm losing my voice for some reason. Um, yes, my blog is KarenChatton.com, and I'm going to get busy blogging again. I've kind of been lax about it this last month because I've been busy walking my horse three times a day. Mm-hmm. And 
helping him get through his <laughs> rehab after his colic surgery. So that's kind of, you know, that's sort of been taking up my time. And, and I will get back to blogging. And, uh, it, you know, for the rest of you, if you're, you know, following my blog and you want to see what I've got going on, I'm on Facebook. I'm uh, in the Endurance Writer, Nevada Endurance Writer, or just search for Karen Chatton, and you can find me there. And I've got uh, endless photos of my horses and my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and very pretty scenery. And you can look at all the, all the pictures of Bo's incision from his surgery and <laughs> watch it as it heals, you know, pretty much on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> <laughs> I do love going and looking at your uh, ride photos because you have some great photos from some of the most beautiful places you've ridden. I mean, you've ridden some Yes, I've got places. lots of photo albums from a lot of rides, and, and hopefully I'll be, you know, back doing rides again in another month or two. All right. Sounds terrific. Thank you so much, Karen, for joining us, and we'll see you all tomorrow morning here on Horses in the Morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Take care. Be safe, Karen. All right. Bye. Good luck to Bo. He'll be fine. <laughs>